good to see you this morning. I'm glad you made it here to God's house to worship him together. And uh, we're going to hear from his word right now. But I figured with this audience, there must be somebody in this room who remembers that ancient archaeological relic called a bookstore. Does anybody remember those? A place where there was bricks and there was a door and you walked in and there was all sorts of books on the shelves and you could look around for hours and buy things. You guys, everybody remember those places? Yeah. They used to, they used to be around. Uh, thank you, Amazon. Um, but also, if you were around in the 80s and 90s and you were familiar with bookstores, you remember that there was this little section that every time you went into a chain bookstore seemed to get bigger and bigger. It was the self-help section. And they sort of exploded in the 80s and 90s, didn't it? People were looking for all sorts of answers about all sorts of things in life. And uh, with the demise of the bookstore, though, you may think, well, maybe the self-help industry has dwindled. But in fact, it hasn't. The reality is, by the end of 2022, it is expected to be a $13 billion a year industry. A simple uh, look at Google this week, a five-minute glance, uh, gave me some of these titles, which I think are, are uh, pretty interesting, and some of them are pretty funny. Um, self-help books you can get um, on, on eBay, you can get on Amazon. 45 simple self-help, self-care practices for a healthy mind, body, and soul. Okay. 12 Rules for Life, an antidote for chaos. The No Self-Help Book, 40 Reasons to Get Over Yourself and Find Peace of Mind. These two are my favorite. A 12-step guide for the self-help book addict. <laughs> Every self-help book ever boiled down into 11 simple rules. Everybody is still looking for the answer, aren't they? Everybody wants help Everybody wants the formula. They want to succeed, and some of us even want to just survive. Now, the book that I hope you have in front of you, the Bible, is a very helpful book. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes, the Bible is helpful it is most helpful but let us never consider it a self-help book see it is a book about where our help comes from it is a book that highlights god helping really a helpless people who oftentimes don't want to be helped it tells us of a god's rescuing story and it highlights his helping power he is the savior and he never stops helping us So he gets the credit, and he gets the honor, and he gets the glory. Well, today we're going to continue our series in the book of Revelation, the final book of of, uh, the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're going to move to the church of Smyrna. Now, this is a church that clearly, clearly needed help. In only three verses, we see the words tribulation, poverty, slander, fear, suffering, hurt, and death. But in these same three verses, we're going to see Jesus speaking words of clarity, calling for a commitment, and giving comfort to his church. And hopefully, we'll be able to see through all of those centuries and hear what Jesus is saying to us today here at Chapel Street. Because Jesus is saying, there is a way. There is a way to walk through tribulation. There is a way to persevere 
through persecution. In fact, he's going to offer us four steps to triumph, to actually triumph in tribulation. And each of these steps will ultimately point back to Jesus himself. So this is not a self-help passage. This is not a self-help sermon. This is a sermon about our God, the one who was our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in struggle. So let's hear God's word. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what they are about, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, just to give us some context, we need to remember that each of these seven churches, the letters to the seven churches, begins with a very clear picture of who Jesus is. Remember, Pastor Jeff talked about the book of Revelation as really the unveiling and revealing of Jesus Christ and who he is. And it's important to note that these descriptions speak directly to what each of these churches are going through or what they are facing. So today we're going to be looking again at the church in Smyrna. What do we know about this church? Well, it's one of only two of the seven churches that doesn't receive a rebuke or correction from Jesus. It was also a church that was under incredible uh, pressure. They were facing uh, tribulation. They were facing oppression uh, from many different sides. But it was also a healthy church. It was a wealthy church in terms of their spiritual connection with God. Now, geographically, it's about 40 miles north of Ephesus where this, it, this, this uh, sickle letter started in Ephesus. So basically, it was the next stop for the postal service after Ephesus to drop this, uh, this letter off. And it also was very much like Ephesus in the sense that it was a port city and it was very affluent, but it was also a center of, of Roman emperor worship where you were required to partake in society. You were basically required to, um, to declare that, the, the, that Caesar, the emperor, was God. So if you were a follower of Jesus in Smyrna and you refused to acknowledge a Caesar as Lord, persecution is sure to follow. But it wasn't just uh, uh, Roman emperor worship that was a part of the problem. You know, at the same time, there's a large population of, of Jewish people um, in, in that city, in Smyrna, and they viewed uh, Christians as, as a hated cult, uh, something to be dealt with and to be uh, dismissed and to be, to be destroyed, really. You know, it was actually common throughout the, the first century for Jews living in largely Gentile cities to, um, to be instigators and uh, agitators for persecution of the Christians. They were an easy target. And this was the case in Smyrna as well, so much so that they are described as the synagogue of Satan um, because of their opposition to Jesus and his church. And then on top of all of that, there was some, some incredible economic persecution that was going on as well. The Christians were being squeezed out of jobs. They were not being allowed to, uh, to have some of the, the, uh, the best jobs in the city. And so that, it, it meant that most of these believers were living in legitimate poverty. Smyrna was a tough place to follow Jesus. 
One of the early, earliest known martyrs, Polycarp, was actually killed in Smyrna. History says that, uh, that the Apostle John himself appointed Polycarp as the Bishop of Smyrna. And he was burned at the stake, again, for not renouncing uh, Jesus and not recognizing Caesar as a god. So why does Jesus pick Smyrna? And why does he send this letter to them? Well, again, this was not an easy place for uh, a Christian to live. And Jesus sees this growing persecution, and he wants to warn and comfort his people and give them a blueprint to face these incredible trials. So where does he start? As I've already mentioned, he starts by describing himself. So what's the description that Jesus offers a persecuted church? What description do they get? How does he reveal and unveil himself to the suffering church? Well, look at the end of verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, hopefully, if you've been reading a Revelation, this sounds familiar to you. If you look back one chapter, look at Revelation 1, 17 to 18. After John sees Jesus for the first time and understands who he really is, John falls down as if he's dead, and Jesus touches him and tells him not to be afraid. And this is what Jesus says to John. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Which in turn should take us back to Revelation uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Look at verse 8. We see what the God the Father says. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I hope you see the connection. When Jesus says he's the first and the last, who died and came to life, he's proclaiming his eternality. That is, he didn't have a beginning and he has no end. And he's proclaiming his power. He is saying, I am God. I am God. Jesus is saying, I always was. I am the first. I was there in the beginning. I'm the creator of all things. I sustain all things, and I'm redeeming all things to myself. I am the last. I'm coming back in power and in judgment, and I will rule forever. That is what Jesus is declaring about himself in these few words. But But like an infomercial, wait, there's more. He describes himself as the one who died and came back to life. Now I think when we read in this century, when we read that Jesus came back to life, I think we can miss the point. Today when we tend to hear about Jesus Jesus being raised from the dead, we think about it as someone who was dead and now is alive. Now, that's part of resurrection, but that isn't all what resurrection is. In fact, that's just simply reanimation. There is so much more to resurrection than simply being raised from the dead. Take Lazarus, for example. He was raised from the dead, but he would die again, right? Now, what about Jesus? Not Jesus. When he emerged from the tomb, Paul tells us in Romans 6, 9, death no longer has dominion over him. There is a huge difference, huge difference between simple reanimation and resurrection. And it's critical that the church in Smyrna understood it, and it's critical that we today understand it. Theologian Wesley Hill describes the difference this way. This is a little bit wordy, but, but pay attention to what he is saying. There is a qualitative difference, not merely a difference of degree or intensity, between the raising of Lazarus and the raising of Jesus. The former is a miracle. 
but it doesn't solve the problem of death at all. The latter is an apocalyptic action of unilateral divine sovereignty forever defeating death and ensuring its absolute eradication. Let me say that last line again. The latter, the resurrection of Jesus, is an apocalyptic action. It was an action for the end of time, a unilateral divine, of unilateral divine sovereignty. God was demonstrating his power, forever defeating death and ensuring its absolute eradication. Hill continues, and he says, Jesus' body is precisely the first instance of God's eschatological renewal of all things. His resurrection is the beginning and initial example of the new creation. It is dissimilar to anything we've seen before. Without analogy or preformed pattern, utterly unique in its unsurpassable theological significance. What is Wesley Hill saying here? He's saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate display of his power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ defeated death and destroys it forever. The resurrection of Jesus was the first step of God actually making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus is the only hope for the Christian. And the promise of being resurrected for Christian means that we get to experience the power of Jesus and we get to enter into his new creation and be with him forever. The resurrection is everything to the follower of Jesus. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If there was no resurrection, there would be no point for the Smyrnans uh, to continue to persevere. And there would be no point for us to be meeting here this morning. But amen. The resurrection did happen. The resurrection happened. And Jesus wants the persecuted church to see him unveiled as the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. Again, he wants the Smyrna church, and he wants us to remember that he is before all things, and in him all things exist. He has defeated death, and he is making things right. And through the power of the resurrection, we can be with him forever, when everything will be the way it is supposed to be. That's the first step that Jesus wants his followers in Smyrna, and he wants us today to understand. If you want to triumph through tribulation, remember who Jesus really is. If you want to triumph through tribulation, remember who Jesus really is. That's the first step. But Jesus wants us to understand and experience more than just his power. Look back at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews are not, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You see, this same Jesus who was resurrected in all power and all glory he's there walking among the lampstands he knows them he sees them he knows and he sees and he understands and he empathizes with the tribulation that they are facing he is right there with them he knows and sees and understands and empathizes with the crushing weight of their poverty he knows and he sees and he understands and he empathizes with what was being spoken against them so unfairly Now, it's important to remember what these tribulations actually are. Sometimes we can think just living in a fallen world is meant to be, is a tribulation or persecution. No, not getting your spot where you want to park in the parking lot at the grocery store, that's not tribulation. That's not what's being talked about here. 
The tribulation, the persecution that we're talking about here, are afflictions that a person faces when they remain loyal to Jesus Christ and refuse to inwardly lose faith and refuse to outwardly renounce him. That is what, what we are talking about. The, that is what these tribulations are about. We need to make sure we have that. But Jesus is right there with them. He wants them to know that he knows what they are facing. Remember, he is walking in the lampstands. He is there. Jesus never stops being Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, who is God, is right there, right now with them. Which leads to the second step for triumphing through tribulation. If you want to triumph through tribulation, you rest in the presence of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, he's right here, right now, with you. And whatever you are facing. Whatever you are facing. So, if this all-powerful God, who knows you and is walking with you right now, what can you do um, to trust him enough to do what he says? Can you trust him, to do, trust him enough to do what he says? That is what he's asking the Smyrnans to do. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know, it's almost as if Jesus is, is a dad um, in a pool that he owns, that he built. And he's trying to coax his child, you and me, to jump to him. You know, he built the pool. He has the power to take, to take care of everything. He is in complete control. And what is he asking? He's simply asking you and me to jump through a challenge, and he will catch us. That's what Jesus is telling us. He's telling the Smyrna church, you need to have an attitude of trust. But more than that, your attitude needs to be backed up and mirrored by action. Now, we know he's not actually asking the Smyrna church or us to jump, but what is he asking them and us to do? Well, two things we see in verse 10. The first thing is do not fear. The second thing is be faithful. Jesus is asking us, the, the, the all-powerful, resurrected Jesus, who is walking with us, is asking us to not fear and to be faithful. Let's talk about uh, do not fear. Well, who are we not to fear? Well, it's very emphatic. We're not to fear anyone. We're not to fear anybody. Now, what is this, this, uh, this suffering that we are uh, not to fear. What's well, the suffering that you receive at the hands of others? Specifically for the Smyrnans, it was imprisonment. Now you have to understand, imprisonment back then really meant that your life was on the line. This is also, uh, this is also uh, suffering and tribulation that is imminent and unavoidable for the Smyrnans. What else, are they, uh, what else in this uh, do not fear are we supposed to understand? We're supposed to understand that it lasts for 10 days. Now, we can go down all sorts of rabbit trails talking about what exactly this 10 days means. And there's all sorts of different theories. But I want to be careful. I don't think that's what Jesus and I don't think that's what John want us to spend our time on. Notice the comparison of 10 days, uh, comparison contrasting that to who, Jesus, to who Jesus is, who was and who is and who always will be. The eternal Jesus is compared to 10 days to 10 days of suffering, of tribulation. I think the real issue here is that it's focusing on the temporary nature of this persecution. 
it will be temporary. It will be terrible, but it will end. I am forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not fear suffering, that will end. That is what he is telling them to do. And then it will be a testing. And we wonder, what is the testing? Well, testing is simply an opportunity for us to remain loyal and true to the resurrected Jesus. That is not something for us to fear or to be afraid of. So do not fear, that's what Jesus is saying. It really is a wonderful attitude check, isn't it? Because what is fear? What is fear, really? Fear is giving more power to anything than God himself. Fear is giving anything more power than God himself in your life. Think about it. Jesus is saying to the Smyrnans, don't let this temporary suffering at the hands of people who cannot take what is most important from you have power over you, have more power over you than you deserve. Don't give in to that type of thinking. And that's exactly what Jesus had been saying from the beginning of his earthly ministry, isn't it? He makes it clear in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. This message should not fear applies to the Spurnans, but doesn't it apply to us today? Chapel Street Church family, are you giving anything more power to anything than God himself? Are you giving anything more power in your life right now than it deserves? Are you giving who is in the Oval Office more power than God? Are you giving what you are seeing happening in our culture more power than God? Are you giving those who don't agree with you on social media more power than God? It's a wonderful attitude check, isn't it? And while we're talking about attitude checks, I, I want to talk about one more thing. You know, it's embedded within the American dream, isn't it? That our chief purpose in life is to avoid pain and suffering. It's almost like it's the American religion. To seek comfort and to avoid pain. But that's not what Jesus teaches. There are no promises for an easy life in the Bible. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus makes it clear that we will experience trouble. Think about John 16, 33. What does Jesus tell his disciples? Well, he wants them to have peace. So he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He said that to his disciples. He said that to, to the Smyrna church. And he is saying that to us today. So his message is clear for us and for the Smyrna church. Don't waste your energy fearing things that you ought not fear. And trying to avoid pain and suffering. But remember that the resurrected Jesus has overcome. That is the attitude we're called to have. But more than simply an attitude, we're being called to right action, aren't we? Again, look at the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Be faithful. Be faithful. Now look, the priority here is faithfulness, not the protection of your death, of your life. Be faithful unto death. The goal is not to protect your life. The goal is to protect, the goal is to protect your, uh, the goal is to be faithful. But how are we called to be faithful? What exactly does it look like uh, to be faith, to put this faith in action? Well, I think from this text we can see two things. 
first, we think about the Smyrna church and the persecution they were facing and the way that they were being uh, forced to, to worship other gods and to make proclamations about, uh, about Jesus that weren't true. So first, being faithful means, uh, means staying faithful to Jesus himself, to not compromising his message and not disobeying what he calls us to do. Even in the face of, worst, of the worst oppression, we are called to stay faithful to Jesus in this way. And it's just like we see what happened with Polycarp and all the rest of, of martyrs throughout Christian history. They stayed faithful to who Jesus was, and they were not willing to deny him publicly with their words or their actions. But now second, this is a little bit, um, we have to look at this a little bit more deeply to understand it. Another way that we remain faithful is that we don't give up on others. Now look at verse 10 again. Notice who is throwing the Smyrna church folks into jail. Jesus doesn't reference the actual people who are jailing them. No, he credits the devil, the adversary, the slanderer. He is the enemy. He is the one doing damage. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 6:12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against, against human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present uh, darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So both Jesus and Paul are saying, people are not our enemy. People are not our enemy. They never are. We are called to love people, even if they persecute us and slander us and harm us. We must be faithful to love them, no matter what. So being faithful means actively seeking and fearing and loving and obeying God himself. But being faithful also means actively seeking to love your neighbor, even if they persecute you. All of this speaks to step number three. If you want to triumph through tribulation, trust Jesus and do what he asks. Trust Jesus and do what he asks. In my life, the person who I think has personified this the most is, is a woman named Catherine Morgan. There's a picture of her here that I'd uh, like to share with you. In 1934, she went with her husband to bring the gospel to a remote southern part of Colombia that had never heard the gospel. It's a city called Pasto. She experienced much opposition. Much opposition. Uh, and much slander. And she and her husband were able to, to start some meetings in the surrounding villages, but they were struggling to make things happen in the city. Until one day, about five years later, her husband, uh, Lester, was fed ground glass and his rice, and he eventually starved to death and went home to Jesus as a martyr. So Catherine packed up her things, brought her four daughters back to the United States, and buried her husband. And the picture on the screen was taken in 1940, and it's a picture of Catherine on a boat with her four young daughters returning to Columbia after burying her husband to continue the work she had been called to do, to faithfully love and serve the people who killed her husband. And over the next 50 years, Catherine endured incredible hardship and persecution. She survived a bus accident that went over a cliff. She had bed pots dumped on her and her girls. She had rotten fruits and vegetables thrown at them many a time. Her house had was swarmed by angry mobs, her house was even dynamite. In fact, she and her, her daughter stood in front of a firing squad. 
all because they believed in Jesus and wanted others to follow him too. And you know what she did in the face of all of that suffering and persecution? She started a church. She started a health clinic. She figured out how to care for people from everything from skin diseases to dentistry. She started a prison ministry. She went into the men's prison, um, prison to serve them. Think about that for a second. She went into a Colombian men's prison to serve the men there. She was the first to help the homeless and the mentally ill in that city. And she gave medical care to the people who killed her husband. She even did that. And her home was always open to anyone, including missionaries. And she became a mentor to many missionaries. And one missionary couple who she mentored were Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Years later, Elizabeth Elliot would, uh, would write about Catherine and her ministry, and she says this in her book, Discipline, The Glad Surrender. Describing um, Catherine's ministry, she says, her house is a haven for an astonishing variety of people. There's never a time when she is not giving shelter and help and food and care and counsel and attention and money and clothing and whatever else is needed to the sick, the insane, the poor, even the criminal. They be the path to her door. Everybody in Pasto knows the Senora Catalina. Anyone who does not know where else to turn, turns to her. This is a very special story about a special woman who every ordinary day of her life chose to follow Jesus. It's a special story to me because the baby sitting in that stroller, uh, in that picture, her name was Lois, and 26 years after that picture was taken, Lois Morgan married Sam Bechtel, and four years after that, they, they adopted me as their son. Catherine Morgan is my grandmother. And I tell you not, not, to, not to lift her up. I tell you not to lift her up. I want you to hear the choice that she had to follow Jesus in the face of persecution and suffering. It's not about Catherine. It's about Jesus. She heeded the same call for that church, that the church in, in, in Smyrna has been called to, and she heeded the same call that you and I are called to. She remembered the person of Jesus. She remembered the resurrected power that she had at her beck and call. She rested in the presence of Jesus when there was no one else there to comfort her. She trusted Jesus, and she did what he asked her to do. She did not fear anything. Trust me, she did not fear anything but God. And she was faithful to Jesus. And she was so faithful to love people. And she was able to do all of these things because she was able to hold on to the promises that Jesus makes for us, which leads to our fourth and final step. If you want to triumph through tribulation, hold on to what Jesus promises. Hold on to what Jesus promises. Look back at verse, uh, verse 10 and 11. And I'm going to start at, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So what are the promises that, that we see Jesus making to Smyrna and to the rest of us? What are the promises that he so wants us to hear? Well, he is promising that if you remain in your faith, now, now notice, if you remain in your faith, 
which is made known through your faithfulness. Let me say that again. If you remain in your faith, that you remain in your faith is made known through your faithfulness, I will do what? I will give you a crown of life. So first, what do we receive? We will receive the promised gift of eternal life. Second, we're promised a crown of life. And a crown is simply a reward that we are going to return to the feet of Jesus to give him the glory and the credit that he deserves for saving us. By faithfulness, you will conquer. I will conquer. You will not be hurt by the second death. We will not be, we will not be judged again. Jesus is saying, through your, though your, through your faith, that is evidenced by your faithfulness, by remaining faithful and trusting God to see you through, and you will be saved in the end. You will gain everlasting life. You will gain victory. And what is victory? Life with Jesus, the resurrected one. These are the promises that Jesus makes to his, his people. And, and brothers and sisters, Jesus can do nothing but keep his promises. That's all he can do. With his promises, the only thing he can do is keep them. So are you listening, Smyrna? Are you listening, Chapel Street? These are God's promises to you. No matter what you are facing, heed them. Treasure them. Hold on to them. Never forget them. Amen. I was thinking about a way to close and sum all of this up. And I think the best way to do that is to summarize uh, summarize our, our the message here uh, from the words from the great theologian Bill Gaither when he sums it up like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future and life is worth living just because he lives. Chapel Street Church family members, you and I can face tomorrow and we can face today no matter what. Because the full power and presence of the resurrected Jesus is with you right now and wherever you go. Remember that and rest in that. And don't be afraid of things that aren't God. Prove your faith by being faithful, by obeying God and loving others. Hold on to the promises that he will see you through this life and carry you on to an eternity with him of peace and joy. That is the message the church in Smyrna, and that is the message for us today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son Jesus, who was and who is and who will be. Thank you that he was alive, he was dead, but now he is alive, full of resurrected power. Help us to have the right attitude and to remember this, and help us to have the right actions in being faithful by loving you and loving others. Do this, we pray, not for our sake, but for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.